0: This is. Make it coming. M.I.P. With Matfumo. Mark Thompson. Make it kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, as we all know, today is 55 years since the assassination, the martyrdom, the ascension of the Reverend Dr. Ronald King Jr., April 4th, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee. We're. Glad to have with us our dear brother from the Atlantic, who alerted me some time ago about a podcast series he's worked on to examine what happened 55 years ago. The name of it is Holy Week, the story of a revolution undone. It is incredible. You must hear it. You must check it out. Van Newkirk joins us from the Atlantic. Hey, brother, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? Just fine, brother. Always a pleasure uh, to see you and and commending you for all the good work you always do. Thank you. Um, This is heavy, man. And and you went through really a timeline, talked to a lot of people who were witnesses, who experienced 55 years ago. What inspired you to take this on in the first place then? So...
1: The moment of April 4th, 68 is is one that's been with me in family histories and just asking people. One thing I've always been interested in since I was a kid was just asking, uh, my grandparents, older folks, what it was like, um, going through that moment. And I think I've always gotten this story of intense significance of real importance. Everybody remembers where they were. Um, but I've never seen. A whole lot of r- real treatment of that moment in media with the same type of significance and importance. Um, if you get it, you get, you know, you just get the fact that King was killed. Maybe they'll talk about the search for the assassin, most uh, documentaries, et cetera, then kind of fast forward to uh, the summer. You don't have a whole lot of treatment. Um, and for me, that was worth investigating. And uh, what I found was something that. I think aligned with my folks, uh, memories. It was this moment of real significance, uh, this week when you had uprisings in over a hundred black communities. Um, and that meant something.
0: I, I used to hear the old folks say, no one ever went out like that. Meaning no one was ever, ever died or was taken out like that. And you had this revolution in the streets, right? That's never happened before in history.
1: Yeah, um, it hadn't. It, you look at just the scale and the scope of it, um, you're talking, you've never seen that amount of people on the streets since between the Civil War and 2020 when George Floyd was murdered. Um, this was a mass, um, I don't want to say spontaneous because obviously there were things, there was a, a years, centuries of things that went into that. Um, but it was, it wasn't something that was planned ahead of time. It was people, um, all the entire community reacting together, um, to this moment.
0: And yeah, there isn't really anything like it. It, it, and obviously the podcast is called Holy Week and that it agrees with my own theology. To me, I've just always found great parallels between the time leading up to Dr. King's passion and death and and that of Christ, frankly. So talk to us about that, because you dealt with the days, months, really, leading up to April uh, 4th, 1968, including what happened in the previous summer, right? And on up to his last Sunday sermon, I think Palm Sunday in Washington, D.C., right?
1: Oh, that was the week after. The week so after. The, yeah, summer before was uh, National
0: Cathedral. That's right, that's right, it was, that's right. That, yep. was, that was Nashville, the April 4th, 1967, right. Mm-hmm. Um, um, talk to us about the lead up to his arrival in Memphis. Yeah, so
1: going into Memphis, um, he's there uh, starting in March of 68. Um, in the year before Memphis, uh, King and the SELC are at something of a crossroads. I think it's safe to say, uh, they were trying to put together and raise money for their first real multi-state initiative in a few years, um, since Chicago. And, uh, they, um, it was a poor people's campaign. It was this real for them radically new direction that involved calling on America, uh, to eliminate poverty uh, by way of a universal jobs guarantee, by way of universal health care, by way of this uh, package that would still be considered radically progressive today. Um, And also King in that time came out against the Vietnam War uh, and pretty much put himself on the side against uh, the Johnson White House and made enemies of the Johnson White House and also quite a few members of the middle-class civil rights establishment. Um, and so going into Memphis, he doesn't have the same type of national belovedness as people uh, sort of recall him having. He, his national approval rating was below 30% and uh, he was being denounced by the New York times, even by the NAACP uh, and going into Memphis was his real crisis moment. He and the SELC needed a local movement to give shape and form to that poor people's campaign. So when his friend and uh, colleague uh, James Lawson uh, calls him and tells him there are these sanitation workers who are striking, he doesn't get involved initially because he doesn't usually do labor movements. Uh, and eventually, there comes a time when it becomes unavoidable. And he goes to Memphis and speaks to the people. Um, people think he's just going to be in and out, you know, do this sort of big man on stage thing and leave. He goes there. He sees the people in the crowd. On March 28th, he calls for a general strike, which is uh, remarkable. It's something he's never done before, um, a real watershed moment in
0: his life. It, he's never done that before. Was You mentioned the crowd, Van. Um, Was there anything else going on? Was it just the momentum of the moment and the spirit of the moment that that you think made him do that? Or was he actually looking for an opportunity to be acceptable or or as acceptable as he once was in the public eye? I think if you read his last book,
1: um, Where We Go From Here, uh, Mm -hmm. Chaos or Community, you can see uh, that this wasn't as spontaneous as it would seem. Um, he was trying to build a coherent uh philosophy around economics and labor that matched, you know, his nonviolent uh philosophy uh and theologically grounded. And so I think what he was trying to do going into Memphis was find a way to expand, you know. I think he understood that what people expected of him which was go and you know be the the boycott guy just for people getting into black schools or people getting into black middle class spaces that was not uh it was not nearly all he wanted to do uh, and he also was trying to um he was in dialogue and in conversation with uh black power activists with what was happening out in Oakland at the time, what was happening in Chicago, um, a lot more than people want to give him credit for. He was understanding their appeal. Uh, he was understanding what, how much was left to be done in the black ghettos in America with the black working class in America. And so I think when he gets to Memphis, um, it may not have been something he put on paper ahead of time that I'm going to go and call for a general strike. But I think he was moving in that direction, uh, philosophically.
0: What were some of those, tell us more if you would, about some of those conversations with uh, folks in the black power movement, was he actually getting close to, to reaching and an opportunity to, um, c- cause here before a, a lot of the conversation and a lot of what we read about him, he was just against black power and there's, there's just no way. But then those of us who take a deeper look know, know that, well, there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, where was that ultimately headed around that time? So uh, Kwame Ture,
1: then known as uh, Stokely Carmichael, gives a Black Power speech in 66 um, and the March Against Fear in Mississippi. And I think initially you see King as the foil to that, right? The person who's saying, I understand the impetus for Black Power, but I believe it's misguided. But you see over the years, he's clearly reading and uh, and, and trying to absorb and having dialogue with Black power folks. He and Kwame Ture, they never stop communicating. Uh, They are uh, actually, when King's killed, Kwame Ture's in D.C. putting together the United Front to actually try and help the poor people's campaign in D.C. And you understand that King is, he's looking at, uh, you know, he is actually, clearly reading what's coming out of Oakland with the Panthers. He's reading uh, Bobby seal. He's understanding it. when he goes and gives that speech calling for the general strike in Memphis, uh, he says essentially power is the ability to affect change. Uh, and that is almost a direct echo of Bobby Seale's uh, speech on what power is. Um, and so I think the simple version is King is, you know, against black power. I think, He's always, and we should never lose sight of this, he always believes that uh, violence and um, sort of even radical revolutionary violence are not the answer. He is a radical, nonviolent, militant, nonviolent person, as he calls himself. Um, but he does understand and is trying to grapple with the significance and importance of black power and the need for uh, achieving and gaining political and economic power in black America.
0: I know in that final speech in, in August of sixty seven before the SCLC, he he says, "Black is beautiful," mm-hmm. uh, and and that I think sh- showed also a, a level an evolution of his thinking. Uh, one of the important things our brother Van has done to folks is, um, is is talk to some of the people who lived that experience, right? Um, and that must've been, um, a very meaningful tour for you to do. You talked to some of the everyday people who were right there involved in this, didn't you? Yeah,
1: that was, uh, I don't think we could have done this show without, um, that's to me, the, the primary thing, you know, uh, I, I do want to talk about what's happening at the high levels, you know, what's happening with America and with the movement. Um, but if I'm looking at any historical moment, the most important thing to me is talking to people who are there, talking to black folks who were there. Um, and at the very least making sure that their, uh, experience is part of the record. Now in a podcast, you can listen to for free. Um, right, right. You know, my kids can listen to it. Um, right. in places where they are banning black history in schools, you can listen to it for free. Um, and that's the mo- the most important thing to me is, you know, I've got people, I talked to a lot of people in D.C., especially uh, who were there when uh, when U Street and Fourteenth, uh, when Cardozo, when H Street, when they burned, and it's a it's a moment that is being paved over in D.C. history right now, uh, and it's one that you don't quite understand if you don't hear from people who were there. Um, so that's the guiding ethos to me of the show and of what I do is uh, we've got especially black elders who have not traditionally been seen as, um, you know, ordinary, uh, people to go out and interview, um, people who are these reservoirs of our history. And it's always important for me to go spend that time.
0: Yeah. And there, in these situations, there are always those nameless faces and it's good to hear from them, in- including, uh, and this kind is close to home to me, there, there was a, um, um, there were, people who had premonitions weren't there again folks this is this is holy week um there were people who had premonitions about what might happen or what was going to happen weren't there there were um
1: you know actually we just talked about Kwame Ture um when uh Stokely Carmichael and um when he and professor Charles Hamilton wrote black power um and they said in black power which was done in 66 66 and 67 um and said that the dynamite of the ghettos was primed to explode they were essentially predicting 68 um obviously they're writing in a time when there were you know 67 66 65 uprisings rebellions across black america but they were predicting something larger same thing as james baldwin um he said that uh the black ghetto in America had become, um, you know, it was it was uh, kindling and uh, it was primed to go up in a moment. I mean, he also talked about uh, Dr. King saying that his life had become such a large symbol um, that the danger against that symbol falling was existential uh, for black America. So I think you saw people who were looking, um, who understood that uh, a moment like 68, like, uh, the uprising in 68 had to happen.
0: Um, there, um, one person who was, I guess, a young person at the time, um, talked about a, a diary from her mom, I believe. Um, and, um, she talks about what happened in 1968. So, you know, my, I think I'm, I don't know if I've shared this story with the audience before. My father's family is, is Memphian. My grandmother was alive at the time, his mom. And it snowed. It was a very unusual snowstorm in Memphis, uh, <laughs> in March. And she had a premonition about that. And she saw things were bubbling up. And she, she told the children, she said, I, I, I don't have a good, my grandmother said she didn't have a good feeling about what was going on. And she was worried that something bad was going to happen. And it did. The first bad thing to happen was at the actual march. And there was the, the outbreak. What, what were you able to discover? Uh, was anything new to be learned from? Because again, all these things have just been told to us from 30,000 feet in the air. But what you've done is the first in-depth thing. And that's why it's so important, folks. What more had, were you able to learn about what happened that fateful day when the march got out of control?
1: Yeah, so we went and we talked to uh, people who were there, um, including members of the Memphis Invaders, which was a local black power group. Um, actually, a lot of people don't know. I didn't know until we started the show. They were the last group to meet with King in room 306 of the Lorraine Motel um, a couple hours before he was uh, shot. And, uh, what John Burroughs Smith, uh, told us, he was a brother who founded, uh, the invaders in Memphis. Um, he essentially told us that they, number one, it was a illustration. They were meeting with King to come to terms. They weren't meeting with, they, they, they clashed, obviously. Um, the invaders had been, um, trying to get agitators to come to the marches and, um, they wanted, To take a militant stance in favor of the strikers king didn't want that obviously um but what happens is not the storybook king is against black power we have this clash happen what happens is they are so um impressed and taken by his actual commitment to poor people and he understands and connects with them partly on the basis um you know a lot of them have the same background uh one of the brothers who founded the invaders, went to Morehouse. So they're able to talk and they're speaking the same language in a real way. And they sit and meet. And these brothers who, uh, up until just a few weeks before, thought King was the person who was going to come and be the face of the establishment, decide and promise that they're going to go be marshals in his march. Um, And that happens even after that the march you talked about on the twenty eighth it, it it is uh people it gets out of hand, police crack down on it um it becomes um, the police end up shooting tear gas inside of Claiborne temple while uh, black grandparents and children are there taking shelter um, often the dissolution of that march is blamed on the invaders, on the black power element who didn't want to march orderly and organized down the street. But in the actual hours after it falls apart, King and those people and that group are meeting and coming together. That's a whole different narrative than what you'll hear uh, about how things went down and about where King was with black power when he died.
0: And, you know, you don't hear that. You don't hear that at all. Um, what, what more, if anything, were you able to learn about the actual assassination itself and, and what unfolded there? Now you said he met with the invaders mm -hmm. in, they were the last group to meet with him in 306. They were, they were the
1: last group. Um, we essentially, they met, uh, members of the invaders drove home. And uh, found out on TV when they got home that King had been assassinated. Um, So it was that close in time. Um, We didn't delve too much into the assassination itself. Um, I was able to, we did uh, go into the COINTELPRO papers um, and we were able to see just the extent to which uh, the FBI had totally infiltrated and was sabotaging every single layer and level of the movement. Um, how they had eyes on and understood every single coming and going of King in the final days. How they even eavesdropped on his family and friends as they were planning his funeral uh, the day after, um, and relayed the information to the president, who decided not to come to the funeral because people at that planning meeting said they were going to put uh, they weren't going to give him a place of honor at the funeral. Um, we we got a little bit more information about sort of just. Exactly how uh, much effort the FBI and federal government went uh, or took in sabotaging and undermining uh, King and what that meant as far as how much they feared him. Uh, but I think as far as the assassination goes and uh, the manhunt and the investigation, uh, those were a bit, we didn't focus on that because. Um, for me, I wanted to keep the lens on the black folks who were just sort of in the middle of the news.
0: Holy week, the story of a, of a revolution undone. Um, have we, you mentioned trauma when we started this, have we recovered from this event? Will we ever recover from this event? And, and it, the argument obviously can can be made that um, the movement at its at its height itself was arrested or assassinated. It it seemingly stopped, and then we know there were fits and starts, and the poor people's campaign tried to go on in that moment. But uh, have we ever really recovered from this as a people and as a movement? Then
1: I would say I don't think the trauma has gone away, um, and I think. Now that I'm, you know, we're done and um, and then it's out in the world, it occurs to me that the question I was really trying to figure out when I was going back and asking my family and taking this question with me to start the podcast was I was trying to understand a moment that I under, that I knew sort of in my bones was traumatic to them, but didn't really have the language to discuss. Um, and now that I look back and and, and see it as clear trauma in their lives, everything makes more sense. Um, and I uh, talk to people who are, you know, sort of present. You see in their lives, people who are in the movement, a lot of them, um, you know, take up, I think, still doing movement work, but they take up in smaller ways. They're more active in local community organizations. A lot of people have sudden career shifts in 68 and the late 60s. Uh, a lot of people um, have real breaks in their lives and not a lot of them are saying it's because of that killing and, and, and that week. But I think, uh, it, you know, when you see it happen in mass, it makes sense. You see a lot of people who remember this time as an inflection point in their lives. And that to me is that that's a mark of trauma. And that's one, you know, trauma in this, on that scale,
0: uh, the moment you heard and, and growing up as a kid, I was born, um, well, I guess two years, but so I was, wasn't, I had just turned a one in that December before the assassination. So I was a baby, but every, while my mother was alive every April 4th, she would weep. She would cry. It was, and I always asked her what that was about. She was all; it was always a very emotional day for her. And and she was sort of an empath anyway, but that's what she did. And that always touched me. Uh, And then that trauma, of course, gets handed down transgenerationally. Folks, what our brother's done is very important. We strongly encourage you to listen to it, to get the full uh, experience of what this time was like 55 years ago, and particularly this, this Holy Week. Um, and we think about Dr. King. I also always like to say, you know, Jesus was crucified next to two people of low stature. Um, and Dr. King went to Memphis on behalf of two people of low stature who were also killed. Um, the two brothers who were the sanitation um, workers, Cole and Walker. Uh, and we think about them as well. And that shows the level of sacrifice he was willing to Who cares? Most of us don't even speak to the garbage workers. When they come around the neighborhood, but doc, they matter to Dr. King. And he gave his life in that struggle. Podcast is everywhere. Holy week, the story of a revolution undone. And you're going to hear from people that we've heretofore not heard from who actually had that lived experience. And it is a a very important and a compelling story. It is, it's touching. And hopefully it will also inspire us to pick up where we left off um, and somehow continue the revolution. I know he would not have wanted us to stop doing anything differently. He would have wanted us to go on. I think we do. We can say that. I think we know that about Dr. King. Van Newkirk at the Atlantic. Follow all the work he does there as well. Always doing great work. Our brother is. Van, thank you for joining us on Make It Plain, Doctor. Thank you so much.